HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm Kim Kessler with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA Law School, and we're broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Joining me today as host is my co-producer, Jenna Liute. Hi, Jenna. Hi. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. So food labels are part of our daily life, and we're all used to seeing a lot of information on them. Products are covered with words like natural, healthy, and we see ingredient lists and nutrition facts, a combination of marketing and descriptive language that many have pointed out is often confusing to consumers. And it's also resulted in a growing docket of lawsuits. Joining us today to dive into the questions of what's natural, what's healthy, what those words mean according to the law, and the real meaning of food labels are Diana Winters, who's a law professor at the Robert H. McKinney School of Law, and Stephen Gardner, who heads the food law practice at the Stanley Law Group of Dallas, Texas, and was previously the director of litigation for the Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group Center for Science and the Public Interest. Welcome to both of you. So glad to have you on the air today. Thanks, Kim. I'm excited to be here. And I am pleased as punch as well. Wonderful. So, Steve, I want to start off with you and with a pretty basic question. Why are food labels important? They're important. Uh, I come at this from a consumer advocate lawyer standpoint. And I also come at it uh, as someone who believes in our economic system. They're an important means of conveying information about the product. Uh, to consumers, uh, as to f- and that applies to any any product, whether it's a you know, CD player or, or a truck. In this case, though, it's quite important because it conveys information or should convey information that's helpful to consumers in deciding whether or not to purchase that product versus a competitor's product. And 
what do you think is, Diana, maybe you can take this one. What do you think see as the psychology behind food labels and how they really impact consumer behavior or are designed to impact consumer behavior? Well, I mean, they're designed to provide um, true information to consumers to make the best decisions they can, as Steve said. But I think we've found some surprising um, evidence that consumers uh, don't get what perhaps the regulators and or food manufacturers want them to get from the labels, um, that sometimes um, consumers either are inundated with information and don't understand what's there or um, misconstrue uh, some of the information that's on the label. And what are some of those And major... sometimes companies just flat out lie. So, that. Okay, so so Steve, well, I think what we what would help is like some examples of what some of those sources of confusion are. I think a lot of us have experienced this as consumers, but spell that out a little bit more. What what can some of the information that gets confusing look like? The and and from my standpoint, the ones I talk about are the ones that there's no quite. It's not confusion. It's a deliberate deception by companies generally who want to make their junk food appear healthier. Uh, than it actually is. What I don't, there are warning signs of probable deception on a, f- a food label. Um, and it, made with or natural are, are, are probably red flags. not going to be true. Uh, there are over 200 lawsuits against bogus natural products. Uh, that are stealing business from actual natural products by slapping natural on it, uh, but not, you know, whether it's GMO, high fructose corn syrup, or what other manufactured thing that aren't. And uh, this shouldn't be the case, but I have seen this to be generally true in the marketplace, that if you see a box that says of, uh, oh, let's say, uh, fruit snacks, it says made with real fruit, that's probably either completely or almost completely a lie. Uh, similarly, made with whole grain is almost certainly to have whole grain, but mostly have just white flour. Uh, neither one of those need to be the case, but that is how companies that don't really have the good stuff uh, set out to let people think they do. Um, can I uh, pick up here, Kim, a little sure. bit? Sure. Um, one of the things that's interesting about what Steve said is that words like natural, um, there isn't a definition coming from the FDA. And so there's a lot of leeway for companies to, to make claims under, um, under labels like natural. Um, other terms are defined by FDA, for example, healthy. But even then, if something says healthy, um, it may not mean what a consumer thinks by healthy, even if the company is complying with FDA regulations. Diana, um, what, is, what is the role? Can you just um, clarify, what is the role of the FDA in regulating labels on food products? I think a, a lot of people hear, um, you know, FDA and they think automatically responsible for uh, food safety. So can you um, talk a little bit about how they're involved uh, in in what can and can't be on a label? Well, 
Um, FDA, I mean, it's been regulating food labels since, um, I think, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think food labels have been regulated since the um, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was passed in 1938. But um, since 1990, um, the FDA has been regulating food label labels more stringently and has put on them, for example, the um, nutrition label information box, you know, the box that everybody knows that says this many calories, this mm-hmm. much fat, et cetera. Um, so the FDA tells companies what can, what has to be on their labels, um, what's in their product, the ingredients that are in their product, and the amount um, of each thing. And it also says what a company can and can't say about the product. It regulates nutrient content claims, which are things like low in sodium. It says when a, when a company can say something is low in sodium or has a certain amount of a nutrient. And the FDA also regulates health claims when a company can say something like heart healthy um, or when a company can say something like, um, I don't know, uh, high fiber. That would be a, a nutrient content claim. FDA has specific regulations about those things. And do, in your opinion, do does the FDA have the resources and authority to stop companies from making claims that may not be true? No. I mean, the, the FDA is um, underfunded and uh, its attention is... It, most of its attention is elsewhere. So I think not only are the regulations not thorough enough, they don't um, encompass enough um, uh, enough areas. For example, FDA doesn't cover whether how much sugar something can have and still be called healthy. It only covers fat, which um, is perhaps an outdated uh, uh, an, an outdated scientific understanding of how nutrients affect the body, um, but it also doesn't have enough resources to enforce the regulations it does have on the books. So given that we have this this problem with the FDA not being able to, to cover everything that it needs to, is that, can we look at these lawsuits as a solution? Steve, would you, would you say that they are? What I've said is that in my opinion, overall, uh, and especially in this context, lawsuits are the absolutely worst way to approach a problem like this, except for all the other approaches. It's a paraphrasing, <laughs> I think, Churchill about democracy. Uh, it, uh, it's the only way that it's going to happen now. Uh, FDA, uh, FDA could do more despite limited resources. Uh, it should do more. It should write a regulation on natural. But I will disagree with Diana. FDA doesn't define every word. People know what natural means, and the fact that there isn't, that FDA, unlike USDA, has not defined the word, doesn't mean companies are free to give it any interpretation they want. Uh, FDA has not defined the word strawberry, but that doesn't mean that companies should be able to claim that a product has strawberries in it when it doesn't. Right. But, but I, I have a question. Um, what, I don't know if people know what the word, word natural is. I don't. I, how, how would you define natural if the FDA is not going to do it? 
What do you think it, that the, means? I, uh, you know, in a, an odd link, a number of years ago, the Sugar Association filed a petition with FDA basically asking the FDA to photocopy the definition that USDA already had. The Center for Science and Public Interest, where I worked at the time, was in the odd position of supporting something that the sugar people said, and we urged them to do so. It requires nothing but saying that they agree with USDA. And I use the USDA definition uh, is as a good rule of thumb, which means minimally processed. Uh, I do know from studies done by last year, Consumer Reports, that consumers overwhelmingly say that a product with GMOs in it is not natural. So, mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's an ad hoc determination. And it is based, uh, as I've also said more than once, I think irritating my old boss at CSBI, that I didn't care what a scientist or a lawyer thought the word natural meant. I only care how consumers perceive it. The right. companies know how consumers perceive it, and they are manipulating that uh, perception. And just, uh, and just, for, and, uh, just for clarification, can, can either of you give an example of what a product that is minimally processed would be? Or that meets USDA standard for that? Sugar. <laughs> As I actually agree with the Sugar Association. It's a quick answer. Uh, it's the test, the rule of thumb test is could you do it in your kitchen? Uh, you couldn't make high fructose corn syrup in your kitchen, and if anyone can make a GMO product in the kitchen, I don't want to be near that kitchen. See, I think the idea, though, of having uh, governmental regulation coming down from the FDA that reflects consumer understanding of what natural means when... I mean, you can say overwhelmingly consumers don't think GMOs are natural. Well, then let's ask those consumers what they actually think a GMO is versus a genetically engineered ingredient. I mean, in my garden outside of my kitchen, I have tomatoes that have been genetically modified. I bought the seeds from Lowe's. Um, and those, I mean, the, the idea of me or a consumer saying that something that's been genetically modified when we actually, I mean, we've been doing that for decades, and that, I mean, in conjunction with the fact that there's, there's been no evidence showing that there's any health effects um, from genetically engineered ingredients gives me pause when I think about the idea of uh, governmental regulation reflecting only consumer understanding. So well, it gets, you're marketing it goes to, to consumers. The, what else would you do? You just, do we take a Big Brother approach and say uh, it means what I say it means? Uh, I guess that's actually the Red Queen from Alice in Wonderland. But uh, <laughs> when we're talking about but, marketing to consumers, you have to accept that consumer perception is a part of it. That is but certainly the way that we do a lot of other things, though. I mean, we look to science and government and experts to to um, establish various standards. But one thing I, I want to ask, I want to uh, refer to Michael Pollan actually wrote an essay about this issue and what natural means and how socially constructed it can be. And so he has he's, he writes um, he wrote 
the most natural foods in the supermarket seldom bother with the word. Any food product that feels compelled to tell you it's natural in all likelihood is not. So I know there's a lot of First Amendment issues here. Can you, would it be an option to say you can't have, you can't use the word natural in packaged foods? So it's a layup no. for the lawyers. <laughs> but so explain. No, I mean, that, that's exactly what Consumer Reports has proposed. In, uh, when they came out with this report, they proposed the FDA just not allow it. Um, it would be um, fine with me if companies didn't use it because, as I say, consumers are not getting the information they want from the use of the word because I'm, I'm happy to know that pollen uh, – said exactly what I've been saying, which is if the word natural is on it, it's unlikely that it actually is. Well, I think also one of the interesting things coming back to lawsuits is that what we're seeing is companies moving away. So there's there's been some indications that companies are moving away from using the word natural because it's seen as a litigation magnet. And so if we can't say or it's not um, desirable to say companies you can't use this word for First Amendment reasons or um, or you know just other reasons. Um, there is these lawsuits may actually be having that effect, but what they are see what we are seeing is companies are moving to other words like using things like fresh instead of natural. <laughs> so I want to take can, a quick a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about some more examples of confusion in food labels. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Or, yeah. And we're back in Eating Matters, talking about food labels today with Steve Gardner and Diana Winters. And I want to just pick up where we left off, talking a little bit about the role of litigation in uh, in going. Are there a lot of litigation against against companies based on things that are allegedly confusing to consumers? And so, I want to ask you both about one of the critiques of the litigation. So, uh, some people have asked, you know, are people involved in these major class action suits? Do they are they actually feeling like they've been lied to, and what kinds of harms are they really suffering because it isn't necessarily safety issues at stake, and it isn't necessarily huge amounts of money? Is there uh, a risk here that the lawsuits are more about making money off of corporations rather than righting legitimate and insidious wrongdoing? So, can I hear from both of you on on how you would characterize the litigation so far? I'll be nice and let Diana go first. No. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think um, I think that the litigation there are it, it is both things. It is people um, uh, legitimately looking to change the system. It is people who have feel they have been wronged. I think it's hard to ask what plaintiffs really feel and look at what the effects of these lawsuits are. Um, can be, which is to fill these gaps in federal regulation 
and to try to address problems in the consumer marketplace. And I think all of that um, is genuine and is happening. I think simultaneously there are um, lawsuits going on that are perhaps trying to jump on the bandwagon and may perceive this as potentially a money-making tool, although I think it's possible Steve can talk more to that. And will. Uh, I, I think that generally what you said, I think, is, is uh, correct. Um, the one thing, is, uh, to go back to what Kim said, is uh, the reason state legislatures passed consumer protection laws and provided for attorney's fees was so that uh, lawsuits like this could be brought and lawyers could afford to do it. Um, so it, this is something that uh, saying that that's a bad thing uh, is second-guessing uh, uh, state legislators. Um, yeah. But I'm sorry, the, the other side is I, I just find it so hilarious for companies to complain that it's just a bunch of lawyers trying to make money when they're being sued over they're lying to people in order to make money. They don't say that the lawsuits are baseless. They just say because they haven't killed you, because it's not a safety issue and it's merely stealing from your pocketbook, that that's not a lawsuit that ought to be brought. Um, and can you also... It. There have been some that have been just plain stupid. Uh, the lawsuit that was later amended that was brought against uh, Fruit Loops, saying that they were sh- uh, that people would think they were made from fruit and that they were even shaped like fruit, that was a terrible lawsuit. <laughs> uh, I even tried to persuade them not to file it. I did not succeed. Uh, I I think they later caught on to the fact that Fruit Loops are not shaped like fruit; they're shaped like donuts. <laughs> They're shaped like loops. There are a few of those. Uh, But But going back to your previous point, can you... Crunchberries, the same law firm. uh, There were, in fact, no Crunchberries in those. That was a stupid lawsuit. But those are... uh, Those are kind of the outliers... and they are the the two lawsuits that always get brought up, right? You, uh, because they were absurd. And but well, can you get the, can you... most of them are good lawsuits, and the, the companies could easily stop them by getting uh, you know by telling the truth and accusing the lawyers who are bringing them because they can because the companies have violated state consumer protection laws. That's not the way to look at it. See, I think, though, the one thing here is that there's not necessarily a truth to be told. We don't have and we don't know with certainty a lot of these of the answers that we're trying to depict on labels. And that there will continue to be litigation, even if the companies, I mean, like perfect world, they decided to be completely transparent, there would still be avenues for litigation. I think the idea that we're trying to reach a truth here is something that we need to think about a little more because we just, the truth is we don't know enough about a lot of these, um, uh, the effects that nutrients have on our bodies and what is healthy and what isn't healthy, et cetera, um, to make these claims. 
Well, that's a different issue. Uh, uh, natural is just a, a ripoff issue. The issue of, of what companies should be able to claim about the positive beneficial effects of these nutrients is a whole different matter. Uh, mm-hmm. I am of the mind that companies should not be able to claim that a product will prevent heart disease by being heart healthy unless that's even vaguely true. Uh, it's, it's not a matter of developing science. It's just conveying information to consumers that they have no idea if it's correct so or not. I'd love to That's talk a, a little way. bit. We shouldn't be medicating with foods to start with. Foods are nutrition and should only be nutrition. Although you, you do hear a lot, of, good foods. a lot of people talking, you know, talking about food as medicine, which I know is not the way the FDA would put it, but I do think a lot of people do look to food and their approach to food as being a fundamental aspect of of health and some people would even think about it as a treatment to certain kinds of health issues. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would, I want to make the conversation a little more concrete by talking about some of the other recent examples that have been in the news. Um, not all of which go to the national, the natural issue. So very, this fall, we've heard a lot about Jess Mayo and their conversations with the FDA who has sent them a letter saying that mayonnaise is an egg-based product, and Just Mayo is a well-known vegan product. So, how are what are the ramifications of that kind of back and forth, and what are your views of how the FDA's um, role there? Diana, maybe I'll ask you to take a crack at that one. Um, well, FDA. Basically, the what's going on here is that FDA has something called a standard of identity for mayonnaise, which is kind of an archaic form of regulating certain kinds of food through the, the kind of after the, the 1950s, the FDA started to write these recipe-based standards of identity. Um, since the late 70s, FDA has been moving more towards, um, instead of having these recipe-based standards of identity, like saying mayonnaise has this and this and this in it, they've moved towards um, uh, ingredient labeling to tell consumers what's in something. Nevertheless, there are still foods that have standards of identity, like mayonnaise. So what FDA is saying here is, look, when a consumer sees mayonnaise, they want eggs. Um, and you, there aren't eggs in here. You can't call it mayo. And whatever you may think about whether this is where FDA should be expending its resources, there is something to be said for the fact that the company did call its product mayo, and it had an egg on the label, which is odd for a vegan product. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the question of whether or not this is deceptive to consumers, um, FDA decided that it may be. And what are the so All FDA decided was that it did not comport with its mayonnaise uh, standard of identity. Um, the, there's never been an issue that consumers are deceived by Just Mayo. Consumers are buying Just Mayo because they don't want to eat eggs, uh, maybe because they're vegan, but for other reasons. Who's, the, the people with a gripe here have been initially, uh, I don't know if it's Hellman's or one of the other Mayo companies didn't like facing this competition. And more recently, the Egg Board didn't like the fact that Just Mayo was taking business from uh, mayonnaise. There's not 
a standard of identity for mayo, I don't believe is mayonnaise, is the standard of identity. And just mayo is as honest a description of that and is actually probably less misleading than what FDA allows the mayo com- mayonnaise companies call real mayonnaise. Uh, the, I have, a, I said Hellman's because I used to live on the other side of the d- country. Uh, I have a Best Foods one in my refrigerator. <laughs> it has all sorts of stuff that you don't put into mayonnaise if you make it yourself, including right. EDTA, which is an, a preservative. Yeah. Don't you think FDA okay. allows that because companies want to use it, but it is not what... You, I mean, to make mayonnaise, I think you need oil, an egg, regular mayonnaise, an oil, an egg, and an egg beater. Yeah. Uh, it's a very simple recipe. This has soybean oil, water, eggs, and egg yolks, vinegar, salt, sugar, lemon juice, <laughs> calc- and EDTA, and flavoring yeah. has been added. Uh, I mean, I, This is no more real mayonnaise, but it, it fits. FDA allows it because they wrote a definition that pleased the mayonnaise companies. I think the egg is is uh, that I, I don't know how you the egg on the label to me that seems incredibly misleading. Well, what I think is interesting in what you're both saying is sort of this role of companies or the food industry in some of FDA's actions, or that that may have underlined this letter being issued. And I think that that's come up with other letters being issued in the past because FDA does have limited resources, and so who brings these? I think. Well, I'd like to hear from you, actually. is Are there indications that how things come to their attention sometimes are based on competitors bringing it to their attention? Or, you know, what drives when the FDA does step in? What right. are your thoughts about what drives that? Steve, we'll ask you. Yeah. This one is a sad moment to the FDA because, uh, you know, they have ignored multiple petitions by the Center for Science and Public Interest and other advocacy groups about, to, to the degree this is even arguably deceptive, and I argue that a label that says egg-free on the front of it is not deceptive, um, the, uh, despite the, the ovoid shape. Um, there's so much worse out there. Why is FDA spending its time? And there, you know, we know from press reports that the egg board somehow pushed it. I don't know what their influence was there, uh, but uh, the, the degree of it. So but why is this out there? And why are they ignoring far worse labeling issues than a product that is being purchased by vegans? Because so it has products. Right. If if the FDA has a standard of identity, it's. I mean, and I don't. I I don't. There, I have no information about how FDA came to this. And as um, you know, we can question its enforcement decisions. We can't question them in a court of law. That's. Um, I mean, that's. It's very difficult to do so um, because of administrative law principles to question an agency's enforcement decisions. Um, but it would, if. You know, we don't get to pick, oh, vegans are somehow better, and so we let them with this label, which isn't complying with FDA regulation, should get a pass, and another one shouldn't. It, I mean, once we have a, an organi- a, a governmental body regulating these um, 
these labels and this stuff is on the books, it um, it applies across the board. And I completely agree with what Steve's saying that you know the question of whether this is where resources, scarce resources, should be expended is a good question. Um, but, right, and on, you know, on, on that point, Diana, I, I'm, I want to talk about um, the kind example, the kind bar example, also because, to your point, it seems you know um, it, it seemed confusing to me that the FDA sort of chose to go after that company uh, for calling their products healthy because they had, say, a certain amount of saturated fat that are derived largely because it is a nut-based product. So can you, was that surprising to either of you? And is that an example of, um, you know, the FDA sort of using its resources, its limited resources in a way that's effective? I, mean, I know I, that I passed for it. Uh, I, I was asked to join one of those lawsuits at CSPI, and I passed because I just didn't think it was worthwhile. Uh, it's technically a violation. Although I disagree. Technically, Just Mayo, which is the product's uh, uh, statement of identity, right. is not does not conflict with the FDA's mayonnaise standard of identity. It's a different word, and it's qualified. Is so it semantics, I don't think though? FDA has a basis for going after it, right. uh, and it is not a matter of consumer confusion. It's a matter of um, egg board I think Je- Jenna is finding that very lawyer lawyerly distinction. <laughs> but yeah, yes, <laughs> uh, but but going back if, to well, if we're worried about what natural means, we at least can uh, hold FDA to saying uh, no. that you you called you violated the mayonnaise standard of identity by calling it. Oh well, you didn't call it mayonnaise, right? But yeah. but mayo is like a common under you know common kind of name. People know that mayo refers to mayonnaise <laughs> by and large. But yeah, I know, but it's I'm bringing the public part perspective of the standard here, of identity. <laughs> so I, I, we don't have that much time left, and I want to um, try and talk about maybe some solutions going forward. Because one thing that I think some of the conversation has made clear is it's really pretty hard to figure out how we should be talking about some of these things, and we can we can see uh, how it gets complicated to make clearly clear, clearly communicate in something as simple as a label. So one of the the solutions that's been put out there and talked about, excuse me, is front of package labeling. Um, and that's something that the Institute of Medicine has studied and the FDA has been considering. And an example of what that might look like is the traffic light model where you would have uh, green, orange, and red to indicate the overall health or nutrition profile of a product. So what do you all think about that and any, um, any predictions about where that might be going here in the U.S.? Diana, to you. I, I mean, oh, did you say me? Yes. Sorry. Okay, I started talking. Um, I like the traffic signal. I think I wouldn't put money on it um, here. I think um, we're going to have a hard time getting traffic signals on the front of packages because of um, uh, industry disagreement. I think the one thing I, I, um, that worries me about it, or not the one thing, but is um, whether it would be who would decide what got a green light and what would go into that decision because as you know coming back to the kind bars just quickly yes they violate it's a technical violation that they have more saturated fat than should be called healthy that however um, now we're seeing that some fats um, are healthier than they seem to be when these regulations were written that nut-based 
fats can actually be good for you. And um, something can have as much sugar as it wants to have, as the food manufacturer wants it to have, and it can still be called healthy. Um, so how are we going to judge these traffic lights? Are, what, what nutrients and what ingredients are they going to encompass? And that's the part of it that worries me. Although also, and you know, Steve, it, it, I want to hear from you on that, but one question I have about that is, like, it's not that we have to have these things in perpetuity. I mean, why not be able to update? Like, why talk about the sugar issue as though it could never be changed? If we now know that high sugar in products is something that consumers should be really aware of, and the added sugar la- label is hopefully a step towards that. I mean, we can change our regulations to match with science. It maybe isn't a reason to not have regulation at all. Steve, your thoughts on that? The, well, using sugar as an example is just uh, FDA's incredible delay in changing the health definition uh, to in- consider sugar. Uh, does not, all that means is FDA is slow to do anything. FDA also says that a, a serving of soft drink is eight ounces. I, it's very hard to find an eight ounce bottle of Coke, um, except in the cute foods aisle. Um, the, I like the, the uh, stoplight. I know that it's not easy, but it's also just not that hard. Uh, you know, we have the dietary guidelines. Uh, people weigh smarter than I have figured out what is and is not a good thing. And you can give points. Also, my goodness, if the Brits can do it, certainly we can do it. Uh, there are some grocery stores in this country, and I want to name one, but I'm not certain that I, I remember who it is. If anyone does, please. They're doing it themselves. Uh, and there's no complaint that I've heard that they got it wrong. Um, it's easy enough. You could basically take uh, take the, the healthy rule of FDA, include a sugar test, and use that. If it if it isn't if if it's that, it could get a green light. If it's close to it, maybe it's yellow. Um, right. It would be a tremendous boon to, uh, especially having been this parent with a kid or two shopping. And trying to keep them from grabbing the food that's placed at kid grabbing from a cart level, uh, off it's it's a great way of shorthand to convey information to consumers. Right, and then um, so can you have a green light if something's in a can that's lined with BPA? Can you have a green light if something has, and I've already made clear my um, thoughts on this, if something has genetically engineered ingredients? Right. What, who, who's going to make this decision, and will consumers have, think that if something has a green light, it is, it's, it's good for you, it's natural, they can eat as much as they possibly want um i think it yeah i think there's no doubt that that if we if we were to institute a stoplight system in this country it would it would um be an incredibly complex and um long process to do so but in the in the current you know absence of uh such a easily identifiable uh system what are some advice you know what is some advice from both of you on to consumers on how to sort of navigate this um navigate these waters um, you know, is there an easy way right now for the general public to kind of demystify these labels for themselves? You know, the uh, the ingredients panel is not easy because FDA still allows companies to eat, 
companies to use all caps with condensed fonts that are virtually impossible to read. Uh, the Nutrition Facts panel uh, is a pretty good way. Uh, the other way would be for companies to stop lying on the PDP, on the, the front of the package. Uh, that's where the problem lies. It's not consumers can't figure it out, but consumers are told one thing on the front, and if they study, if they assume that the front is an absolute lie, they, they can turn and figure it out. I just say they shouldn't have to. Um, and I guess my, my advice would be um, to stop relying on labels and to use common sense and to eat as much food that hasn't been processed as possible. And when you are going to introduce processed foods, um, eat, eat, eat things in moderation. Um, and I... I Michael Pollan says it really well. It was, he said, eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. And I think that's smart. And there you have it. Well, no, so, oh. yeah, <laughs> All right, last word. Last word. From, a, yeah. from a health standpoint, yeah, don't read any labels because don't buy packaged foods. That would avoid most of the uh, problems with the unhealthfulness of foods, but we're going to buy them. Uh, I, I just say don't believe anything on the front. Or turn them out. Turn over the packages. Read the back of the packages is, is what I'm hearing for when we are buying our mm -hmm. packaged foods. So mm -hmm. I want to yeah. thank you both so much, our guests, Steve Gardner and Diana Winters, for a really interesting conversation about food labels today and maybe food labels of the future for joining both Jenna and I. Our show co-producer is Jenna Liute, who is here with me in the studio today, and our intern is Austin Brynjarski. Show music's by Tim Archer. I want to thank our engineer today, Jack Inslee, and our sponsors. The show is available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast at iTunes and, and at Stitcher, and you can also find us on Twitter. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 